Lord, we thank you so much for this morning that we get to be with your people on the Lord's Day. We acknowledge that your word tells us that where two or three are gathered in your name, there you are in the midst of them. It doesn't mean that you're not omnipresent or you're not with us when we're by ourselves, but there must be some way in which you choose to make yourself especially known when we're gathered together with your people. And we acknowledge, Lord, that we are the New Testament temple and you choose to uh, fill us particularly when we're gathered together. And so we just acknowledge your presence this morning. We ask that you bless those that are teaching our children and bless our time together as we just consider this uh, second temple period and all that um, you are doing in your sovereignty and, and also that your spirit would just apply it to us today, help us to see how this text um, speaks today. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, so we are in the middle of a quarter called God Protects and Restores. This is going to take us really to the end of the Old Testament, so believe it or not. So if you, those of you guys have been with us since the beginning, we started way back in Genesis. We've been moving through, not verse by verse, but basically book by book historically. And then um, once this quarter's over, we'll be jumping into uh, the New Testament. This morning's lesson is called Restoring Worship. So we're going to be talking about the post-exilic period. Those of you guys that may remember kind of our nine periods of Old Testament history, we started off with beginnings. Then Tushu, we went into the patriarchal period, three tree, the exodus, four door. We went to what? The conquest, five hive is the judges. This was our mnemonic, six sticks, the united kingdom, seven heaven, the divided kingdom, eight gate the exile now nine dime we're coming down into the post-exilic period we're returning back so this is really kind of the last period of old testament history next week we'll be talking about esther and then moving through kind of the the minor prophets as we head towards uh, the new testament let's just do a little bit of review from um, last week so our last lesson was the final lesson of the 70-year period, and uh, we talked about Daniel last week and, and uh, the lion's den. We talked about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. Um, we will come back to Daniel's visions a little bit later. And so just remember that there were three different waves of captivity, starting with 607 um, when Nebuchadnezzar captured Jerusalem. That's when Daniel and the others were taken up. And then there was the second deportation, 599, and then the final destruction, 588. Some people would put it at 566. What was uh, significant about the third stage of the captivity? Anybody remember the big event that happens in the final stage of that captivity? Close, but no cigar. Anybody recall? Yes, so this is the absolute destruction of the temple. So when Nebuchadnezzar first came, he took Jerusalem, but that third time he completely destroys the temple. Uh, burns, carries up all the vessels and uh, much of the gold and silver up into Babylon. And so, yeah, so that's the destruction of the temple. So our lesson today, we're going to be talking about the first stage of the return and there's actually three stages of return. Just as there was three stages of exile, there's three stages of return uh, back from the exile. And um, so you can kind of see the three steps down and then the three steps up in this little graphic here. On the left side, um, you've got the 607, Babylonian captivity begins. You've got... Um, uh, all the way down to Jerusalem is burned and temple destroyed, 588. And then um, starting in around 537, we're going to see uh, Cyrus's decree. We'll look at that today. Zerubbabel returns to Jerusalem. Then if you fast forward, you go to 467. There's Ezra's return and then Nehemiah's return. So it gives you a little bit of an idea of what's happening here with the post-exilic period. Um, of course, the big books in the post-exile are Ezra and Nehemiah. You've got Esther. Haggai is one of the big books. 
and then um, uh, we're going to Malachi will eventually hit Malachi. Um, so that gives you another just kind of the some of the key players. So we're talking about between the first um, stage of the exile to the last stage of the return. We're talking about a approximately a 200-year period of Israel's history. So what I'd actually like to do here is um, I want to start with Isaiah. So I kind of fooled you into having you turn to Ezra. Let's turn to Isaiah first. The Isaiah 44, 28 passage. So I wanna, we want to kind of set the stage chronologically. Anybody remember when's, when is Isaiah giving his prophecies? Approximate time. Yeah, yeah, we're talking in the 700s BC. And so this is a long time before Cyrus gives the decree to, the re, to return, uh, rebuild the temple. So if you'll notice there in verse 28 of Isaiah 44, who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and he shall fulfill all my purpose. Saying of Jerusalem, she shall be rebuilt, and the temple, your foundation, shall be laid. And then look at verse 1 of the next chapter. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped, to subdue nations before him, and to loose the belts of kings, to open doors before him, that gates may not be closed. So we have here Isaiah giving prophecy in around 700 something BC mentioning Cyrus by name um, this is a pretty big deal um, and there's Jewish tradition in fact Josephus talks about this that Daniel perhaps was the one that would have pointed Cyrus to this text, to this prophecy. In fact, look at Daniel 6.28. Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah. Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel. So if you look over there, this was, we looked at this last week on the back end of the um, Daniel and the lion's den. That whole narrative ends with this statement, verse 28. So this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus, the Persian. So Daniel was around um, during Cyrus's reign. The relationship between Darius and Cyrus is somewhat mysterious because um, other than what we have in the Bible, we don't really have any information about Darius. And so Bible scholars, they speculate that Darius was kind of like a, um, a vice regent of Cyrus. And so Darius would have come in. If you guys remember, remember Belteshazzar was kind of partying and living it up while Cyrus and Darius are outside ready to attack. He thinks everything's cool. Nobody can get through my walls. <clears throat> All of a sudden he says, hey, uh, go get the vessels from the Jewish people. Get the, the vessels from their temple. And he starts drinking and partying with the temple vessels. All of a sudden he sees writing on the wall, right? He has no, doesn't know what the writing means. Daniel interprets the writing. Tonight you are going to die. And that is, and sure enough, that's the night um, I don't know if you guys remember the story, but Cyrus actually says, and this is extra biblical information, he says that the gods gave him an idea to basically cut off, or I think it was like to, to build a, a, a dam, or I forget, he rerouted the water that was heading in, and they were able to go into um, Babylon on dry ground and came in and killed Belteshazzar. And then Darius gets set up as the vice regent, as it were. And so during that whole time, for whatever reason, 
and we don't know the details of how this works out. So Darius comes in, kills the king, but leaves Daniel alive. And so Daniel continues to advise Darius and to advise Cyrus. And so at some point, we just speculate, there's no particulars on this, but we would just have to speculate that, that Daniel perhaps showed Cyrus the prophecy that we just read in Isaiah. And Cyrus is seeing his name in the Jewish scriptures, that God had said, you are going to come down and you're going to be the one that sends these people. And it just so happened that, you know, the Persians had a very different foreign policy from um, the Babylonians. The Babylonians, you guys know what they did. They destroyed the temple. They took all of the, they killed most of the people, but they did take some of the better peoples up to, I shouldn't say better, some of the educated people, some of the people that they felt like they could benefit from, they took them up to Babylon or Nineveh, one of the two places, and then they left behind some people to mix races um, down in the Jerusalem area, Judea and area. Um, but the Persians had a very different philosophy. <coughs> they actually uh, encouraged people to continue to worship their gods as long as they were faithful to send their tribute um, they could stay in their area, they could worship their gods, and just send their tribute. And so Cyrus, we're going to see, begins to uh, send uh, Jews back to their land. Um, let's go ahead and also look at Jeremiah twenty-seven twenty-two before we look at the Ezra text. It's Jeremiah that gives the particular prophecy about the time period. Um, so it says, They shall be carried to Babylon and remain there until the day when I visit them, declares the Lord. Then I will bring them back and restore them to this place. So again, Jeremiah is prophesying before... Uh, Judah actually gets carried away into, <clears throat> into Babylon. And let's see, where is it that it actually says, it actually gives the 70 years. Um, anybody remember I'm losing track of where that is in Jeremiah? where he actually pronounces 70 years. Let me look back in my reference here. So I believe, yeah, look over at, let's look at a couple other Jeremiah passages. Look at Jeremiah 25. We're going to look at 25, 11 and following. Yeah, there we go. This whole land shall become a ruin and a waste, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. <clears throat> then after 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and the nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, declares the Lord, making <clears throat> the land an everlasting waste. I will bring upon the land all the words that I have uttered against it, everything written in this book, which Jeremiah prophesied against the nations, for many nations and Great kings shall make slaves even of them, and I will recompense them for their recompense them for their deeds and works of their hands. So Jeremiah not only prophesies that Babylon will take Judah into captivity, prophesies that Babylon will be taken captive themselves, which does happen um, underneath Darius and Cyrus. Also look at uh, the same book, chapter thirty-two. We're going to look at 32, 36 to 38. So in, in uh, chapter 32, verse 36, Now therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning this city of which you say, it is given into the hand of the king of Babylon by sword, by famine, by pestilence. Behold, I will gather them from all the countries to which I drove them in my anger, in my wrath, in great indignation. I will bring them back to this place and I will make them dwell in safety and they shall be my people and I will be their God. So, so we've got the prophecy of Isaiah. <clears throat> we've got Dan the prophecy of Jeremiah that's made before 
Judah is even taken into captivity. And then Daniel is serving underneath Darius and Cyrus. And we would speculate that Daniel reveals or, or, or shares these prophecies with Cyrus at some point, as Josephus indicates. Now, Josephus is writing, you know, hundreds of years later, but he is closer to the time of the events than we are. Um, and Der Cyrus would have figured this out somehow. And so that's, that's why we have the speculation. So with all that, let's turn to Ezra chapter 1 now, and let's, let's investigate <clears throat> this amazing return. Um, and again, just imagine that you're, you're one of the ones who's born in captivity. You've heard these prophecies, you know, that one day you're going to be returned back to the land. There would just be no reason to, other than by faith, when you're just underneath, you know, Nebuchadnezzar and his son, no reason to really believe that this would happen, right? We're talking about one of the most powerful rulers in human history, and God is saying, hey, you're going to be going back to the land. So let's, let's start in verse 1 of Ezra. Ezra 1, chapter, the first chapter, verse 1. I'm reading from an ESV. The first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put in writing. So what we have here in this first couple of verse or first verse, the kernel of the sentence is the Lord stirred up Cyrus. That's the main subject verb uh, that's happening here. So God stirs him up somehow. Um, he stirs him up for what purpose? That the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. Why did God stir up Cyrus? To fulfill prophecy that he had given to Jeremiah. And, um, and what was it that he was going to do? He proclaims something and then he writes it out. Um, he proclaims uh, throughout his kingdom and puts something in writing. And this is what he proclaimed. Verse 2, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, Yahweh, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel, he is the God who is in Jerusalem. So he's speaking of Yahweh, the God of heaven, all of his people. Hey, God has called me to, to rebuild a temple for him. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. I don't know that there's strong evidence that here Cyrus has suddenly become monotheistic. Um, but he's pretty impressed probably with this prophecy that has been read to him out of Isaiah. He's acknowledging that this God in Judah probably is a very powerful God, and he is going to do what he sees in this prophecy. Verse 4, And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods, with beasts, besides freewill offerings for the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. So part of this... Um, proclamation is he's he's telling the Jews to go back to their land but not only that he's commanding their neighbors to help them so he wants the neighbors to help them Cyrus is going to help them and then we're going to see a few other people get in on the help so look at verse 5 and following then rose up the heads of the fathers the houses of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred up to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. Again, God is stirring hearts. He stirs Cyrus's heart. Now he's stirring the hearts of the heads of family and the Levites um, to, to go back. Verse 6, and all who were about them, so this would be their neighbors, aided them with vessels of silver, with gold, with goods with beasts, with costly wares, besides 
all that was freely offered. So what does this remind you of? They have these pagan Babylonian slash Persians just handing over gold and silver to the Jews. What's that remind you of? Yeah, it just it reminds you of, of the of Israel being taken out of Egypt and people just giving them stuff. In that case, they're like, hey, get out of here. Don't let the door hit you on the way out. We don't want your God bringing his plagues on us anymore. In this case, there's no sense of plague that has necessarily come upon Babylon or Persia. Although I'm sure Cyrus didn't come in and just shake people's hands when he took over. Um, but there does, if you remember, <clears throat> the people would have observed some pretty amazing things. They would have ob- obser- observed Daniel giving uh, you know, prophetic visions, um, Daniel in the lion's den. No doubt that story spread. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. People are, are probably just watching their slaves, their Jewish slaves, and saying something is up with this people. Something is up with the God of this people that he is doing amazing things on their behalf and now here cyrus who is now our overlord is commanding that these people go back and rebuild a temple for their god so they 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 seem to be amazed but they're also submitting to the edict from cyrus so in verse 7 cyrus the king also brought out the vessels of the house of the lord that nebuchadnezzar had carried away from jerusalem and placed in the house of his gods that is just amazing. It's we can read a verse like that and just like, oh, oh, okay, let's have my quiet time. But really think about what what that means. That Nebuchadnezzar, when he destroyed the temple, took the vessels that had been made for the worship of Almighty God, put them in the Moon God Temple, probably Nebu, right, or or perhaps other gods that were up there in Babylon, and and that these vessels were just. In the, in the temple of false gods. Not only that, but Belteshazzar is sitting here partying with them at one point um, before he sees the writing on the wall. So now we have Cyrus saying, hey, take the vessels back to this place. Uh, then verse 8, Cyrus, king of Persia, uh, brought these out in the charge of Mithridath, the treasurer, who counted them out to Sheshbezer, the prince of Judah. So he, he brings them out and has Methrodath, um, the treasurer, to make sure everything's there and that this is all being handled in an orderly way. Gives them to a, a person that's called the Prince of Judah. We don't really hear a lot about Sheshbazar after this. At one point he is called a governor. It's really um, Zerubbabel that takes the lead once they get down there. So it could be that Sheshbazar is some sort of go-between Maybe he's like somewhat of an ambassador. We're not really sure. Methrodath, the treasurer. I just wonder sometimes if some of these uh, these novel writers, if they don't just rob and steal parts of names and put them in their books, like Mithrandir and stuff like that. You see, it's a lot of, there's a lot of concepts in the Bible that just find up. You know, they wind up in literature somewhere. Um, which, you know, the Bible's been read for hundreds and hundreds of years so then verse 9 and this was the number of them 30 basins of gold 1000 basins of silver 29 censers 30 bowls of gold 410 bowls of silver 100 other vessels all the vessels of gold and silver were 5400 all these did bell uh, i mean a uh, shesbasar bring up when the exiles were brought up from babylon to jerusalem so these numbers would have been significant to those that are returning uh, they would have had a better idea of kind of the number of vessels that would have been taken away by um, Nebuchadnezzar. And so we don't really know with precision how this would affect the readers, the original readers. But my guess is, is they're looking at that number and thinking, wow, you know, pretty much pretty close to the number that was taken away by Nebuchadnezzar is being sent back by Cyrus. That's what people would suppose. That's what, you know, Bible scholars, Bible readers would probably, what would be the purpose of that number? If it was significantly less, it'd be kind of deflating. But if the people that were in the know at the time, it was like very close to the number or maybe the exact number of vessels, that would be pretty encouraging, wouldn't it? After 70 years that all of this stuff is being brought back down 
And then uh, verse 1 and 2 of the next chapter. Now, these were the people of the province who came out of the captivity of those exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried captive to Babylonia. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his own town. And they came with Zerubbabel, Jeshua, Nehemiah, Sariah, uh, Reliah, Mordecai, Bilshan, Mispar, uh, Bigvi, uh, Rehum, Bena. And the number of the men and of the people of Israel are, and, and it goes in a list, the number of the, the people that return. Any of those names that are read in verse 2 stand out to you? Yeah, so Mordecai stands out, and unfortunately this is not the Mordecai of Esther, but it does show us that Mordecai would have been a, uh, a name that people would have taken to themselves. Any other names stand out? Nehemiah, and unfortunately this is not the Nehemiah that we're going to read about later, but it is a Nehemiah. And so there is a Nehemiah that comes in this first stage. We're going to read about another Nehemiah that's going to come on the third stage. Any other stand out? Zerubbabel. So this is the Zerubbabel of the first stage of the return. And then Jeshua is also going to play a significant role. Most of the other ones we don't really hear a whole lot about. Big Bai. I kind of like that name, Big Bai. If we were going to have another kid, maybe name a big guy. Be cool. So, okay, so what do we have here in this in this first section? It's pretty amazing stuff. The Lord stirs Cyrus. The Lord is stirring the heads of, of the of the families and the priests. The neighbors are participating. Cyrus is helping. His treasurer is helping out. The Sheshbazar is helping lead. And God has preserved all these vessels. There is lots of stuff here for people to get excited about who would have both been part of this return. But also, remember, when you're reading certain sections of Scripture, Ezra wasn't written simultaneously with these events, right? These events happened, and then the Lord inspired, you know, fills somebody to write this event, write about these events later for a later generation. So the original audience of the reading of Ezra were people that were already in the land who are maybe perhaps being, you know, feeling discouraged about some of the things that they're seeing. Uh, maybe, um, you know, they're starting to feel um, that things aren't exactly the way that we were hoping when we came back to the land. And so they're being called to remember, just remember what the Lord had done. You guys used to be up in captivity, and look what the Lord did. He stirred Cyrus. He stirred up the heads of households. Just like Pastor Milton was preaching last week, you know, as we lose, there's times where we can lose the quality of our first love, kind of that first place quality of our love. And one of the antidotes to that is what? Remember. Go back and remember what the Lord has done for you. And so the original readers of Ezra are being called to go back and remember of all these things that God and his sovereignty had done for his people. And we're no doubt recipients of this text ourselves. And so we're being called to remember what God, the whole story of God's rescue of Israel is not meant to just be for uh, the Jews. It's not meant to be just be for those of Judah. But for us to, to also recall how the Lord, you know, here we are in 2018 and God's church is still in existence. God's people still spread throughout the, the earth with all of the persecutions, the attacks of the devil, um, the world, the flesh and the devil. We are still thriving. There are still people worshiping the Lord. And uh, this morning we will be meeting together as God's temple. And so lots, lots of, uh, to be encouraged by. <clears throat> One of the things that we can see in this particular um, section or that is it kind of reminds us of Proverbs 21, doesn't it? In Proverbs 21, 21, it says the Lord has the heart of the king in his hands. He turns it any, way with, any which way he wants, like a river. Kind of paraphrasing. Let's, let's turn over so we get the exact phrasing there. 
Proverbs 21. You guys know what verse I'm talking about, right? <coughs> yeah, the first verse there. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. And so we see in this text the Lord just turning Cyrus's heart, turning the hearts of the fathers. <coughs> Say it again. Like Obama's heart. Yeah, exactly. Well, we see examples of this throughout the Bible. Remember in Genesis 20, uh, Abraham was playing his little game again, giving his wife over to somebody, you know, hey, I don't want to die, I don't want to get killed, which partially tells you how violent the times were, uh, that he's worried about getting killed by his wife. But then Abimelech, it says that the Lord withheld Abimelech um, from doing anything dastardly um, with Abraham's wife. And so the Lord was the one that was doing that. Um, in John, let's look at John 19. No, we'll just talk about John 19, 11. <clears throat> Jesus acknowledges to Pilate that you can't do anything unless the Lord grants it to you. If the Lord grants it to you, then yeah, you can do whatever he says. But if the Lord doesn't grant it to you, then you can't do anything. Romans 13, 1 Peter, <clears throat> we have just a reminder that all governing authorities are really underneath God's control. We should submit to the governing authorities unless they're trying to get us to do something that's sinful or, or whatnot. Um, but we do see God in control of governing authorities. Um, and so that kind of begs the question, how should we view like just kind of governing authorities or even just kind of historical circumstances? We can think about God <clears throat> what he did with Belteshazzar and Nebuchadnezzar and Cyrus and so on. How about something in more recent history here? Why did the German Panzer stop short of Dunkirk? I don't know if you guys have seen that Dunkirk movie or <clears throat> the Winston Churchill movie that recently came out. You know, kind of, there, there was really no good reason for the Panzer Division to just stop. If they would have kept going, they probably would have annihilated the three, 300,000 English soldiers that were there on the beach, and almost certainly that would have been the end of the war uh, from England's perspective, and things would have turned a very different direction. But for some reason, all these panzers just stop. And they had outrun their infantry, maybe they're waiting for gasoline, but by most reports, they could have pressed forward, but they gave, I think, another three or four days, which allowed uh, Britain to get their men off of the beach, which turned the war. <clears throat> well, I'll tell you, knowing who God is, I, I think it's pretty certain that God stopped the Panzer Division to help the British get off the beach, which turned the war uh, significantly. We can think of just other instances. <clears throat> um, we could ask this question, who is to blame for the destruction brought upon Job's children? If we're going to talk about God's sovereignty over all things... One of the places to go is the book of Job. Who's to blame? Should, is it the Sabaeans that came from the north or the Chaldeans from the south? Is it God, Satan, Job? Is it nature, the Sirocco wind? What's that? <clears throat> yeah, there's, it's clear that God is the first cause of all of these things, right? The Satan is standing before God. He's pointing to Job. God says, you are allowed to do this, but not that. And so Satan goes and does this and not that. And then the rest of the book of Job is trying to deal with this question of Job's like, why am I suffering? I haven't done anything wrong. And his accusers are like, no, that can't be. We know theologically you must have done something wrong to get this kind of treatment. And the reader knows what's transpired in the heavenlies, but... The actors don't know. And when God shows up on the scene at the very end, he really doesn't answer the question. He just says, who are you? Who are you? I'm in control of this whole thing. And, and there's a sense of with jo Job does not cave in the way Satan says he's going to, but he does cave in in some respects. And God confronts Job, but then also loves Job and, and then has Job sacrifice for his friends. So you see God's mercy in the end. By the way, he totally ignores the young guy. What's his name again? Who's the young counselor? What's his? Uh, yeah, Elihu. Yeah. 
So Elihu shows up, right? You guys remember that? So Elihu sits around. You don't even know he's there, and all of a sudden he speaks up. And then he goes on longer than anybody else. And then he says, is not knowledge perfected in me? You know? And so when God shows up to start rebuking people, he doesn't even acknowledge Elihu. Um, this is very interesting. <clears throat> in ancient cultures, to just totally ignore somebody, not even to acknowledge their presence, is the ultimate shame, right? Like if I came around and started rebuking a few people, but I ignored Brian, Brian should be like, whoa, I'm not even worthy of a rebuke, right? <clears throat> All this to say that we see, this raises the problem that we see in Ezra and the whole history of, of Israel being returned is really not much different than even the problem that we see in Job. And that is that God is in control of all of these things. We say yes, but he's also the one. He brought Assyria down to punish Israel, right? But then who punished Assyria? Babylon. Who brought Babylon? God. And then who punished Babylon with the Persians? God. Who brought the Persians? God. You had the and so then the Persians are sitting there, and then they get wiped out by Greece. And God is moving all of the pieces. It's one of the big problems. I don't know when's the last time you guys read Habakkuk. Who, like, spent time in Habakkuk this week? We don't normally just turn to Habakkuk, but what's the big problem of Habakkuk? Habakkuk's like, God, your people are participating in such evil when are you going to do something? God says, I am. I'm bringing the Babylonians down to punish them. Then Habakkuk says, whoa, whoa, whoa. The Babylonians are more wicked than the Judeans or the, those in Judah. Is it, I forget, is it start with Israel? I think, I think it starts with Assyria coming down. And so he's like, the Assyrians are going to come. And he says, they're, they're, they're the wickedest guys around. These guys are the Aztecs of our area. And um, so God says, well, don't worry. I'm going to bring the Babylon, Babylonians to come in and punish them. And then he just puts his hand in his mouth and he says, Lord, you know it all. Even if, the, even if the grain won't come up and produce and even if we don't have food and we can't have any more children, we will praise the Lord. And so it's that whole problem of evil thing. From a Christian perspective, we have an answer to the problem of evil, even if people don't like it. And that is, is there's a difference between there's a creator-creature distinction. God can righteously do things that his creatures cannot. We just don't have the ability, the power, the wisdom. God is the creator, so he has the ability, power, and wisdom to do things in a righteous way and control all of these pieces of history in ways that could never be done by a human being. If I were to do what God is doing, I would be Idi Amin or Hitler or something like that. But God can control these pieces and remain righteous because he is God. And we cannot, we cannot uh, attain to his wisdom and his power and to keep these plates uh, spinning. Say it again. Is that helpful? Okay, so creator-creature distinction, right? You're the creature, so Brian, you can't do the things that God does, right? And the Westminster Confession of Faith, the way that the Westminster Confession of Faith talks about is it talks about first and second causation. A lot of times we're reading stuff like that. And we're like, well, what does that mean? It just means they're just trying to use terms to summarize what the Bible says. They basically say that God is the first cause of all things, yet there are secondary causes. So, you know, when in 1993, when I showed up to Cornerstone Fellowship Bible Church, and then all of a sudden, like Katie Sellers at the time showed up at Cornerstone Fellowship Bible Church around the same time, and then we started to get to know each other. What was the cause of that? Well, the first cause was God. But secondary causation, I had to go ask her on a date, right? And so, but when I asked her on a date, that was also caused by God. But I had a responsibility to go do that if I was ever going to get married. If I just sat around and didn't do anything, I would have never gotten to go on a date, would have never gotten married. But yet, we know that God is the first cause of all things. So it's first, first cause, second cause. And all they're doing is they're just trying to say what the Bible seems to say, and they try to leave it there because Deuteronomy, was it 31, 31, or 29, 29? The things revealed to us belong to us and our children that we may obey them, but the secret things, what? You got it, 29, 29. So it's, it's the secret things belong to the Lord. 
right? We can only go so far and then we say the secret things belong to the Lord. There was one other thing I wanted to say before we moved on from that. Was that in the application? No, we'll save that for application. So let's go ahead and turn to Ezra 3. So this isn't too much further down the road. So the people come down, and the first thing they do, um, which is interesting, it seems like, you know, the people, those that are in leadership and then the people themselves, they they really seem to get the reason for their return back. It's They do need to build the temple, but they start off with the most important thing, sacrifice. These these folks haven't had the opportunity to sacrifice for 70 years, right? And so they've known <clears throat> the distance of the Lord, and yet his mercy. So let's look at three. We're going to just read quickly 1 to 11. When the seventh month came and the children of Israel were in the towns, the people gathered as one man to Jerusalem. Then arose Jeshua, the son of Josadak, with his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of um, Shealtiel, um, with his kinsmen, and they built the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. And they set the altar in its place, for the fear was on them because of the peoples of the lands, and they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, burnt offerings morning and evening. So what are they afraid of? It says the fear of the people was upon them. What are they afraid of? Do you think the people that are down there, kind of this has become their house, they're really excited about the Jews coming back down and setting up their altar and starting to sacrifice on it? No. So they've, they've come back into what was considered their land, but it is now a hostile land to them. Even though Cyrus has given this edict, it's these people are, the people that are down in the area, as we're going to see, they're not excited about them being there. And so there's some fear that has come upon them, but they say, let's get this baby up quick and start these sacrifices. Verse 4, And they kept the Feast of Booze, or the Feast of Tabernacles, as is written, and offered the daily burnt offering by number according to the rule each day required. And after that, the regular burnt offerings, the offerings at the new moon, all the appointed feasts of the Lord, the offerings of everyone who made a freewill offering to the Lord. From the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, but the foundation of the temple was not yet laid. So they gave money to the masons and carpenters uh, and food and drink and oil to the Sidonians and Tyrians, uh, uh, those from Tyrus, um, to bring cedars, cedar trees from Lebanon to the Sea of Joppa, according to the grant that they had from Cyrus, king of Persia. So they, um, so they, they barter to bring in cedar. There, there was a port in Joppa, which is 30-something miles from Jerusalem. Um, so um, those from Sidon and Tyre are bringing this, the stuff that they need. Then verse 8, Now in the second year after the coming to the house of the Lord of Jerusalem, in the second month, this is about seven or eight, eight months later from the previous paragraph, Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Josadak, made a, a beginning together with the rest of the, their kinsmen, the priests, the Levites, and all who had come to Jerusalem from the captivity. They appointed the Levites from 20 years old and upward to supervise the work of the Lord, and Jeshua, with his sons and brothers, and Cadmiel and his sons, the sons of Judah, together supervised the work in the house of the Lord, along with the sons of Hinnadad and the Levites and their brothers. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple, the priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets, the Levites, the son of Asaph, the symbols to the praise of the Lord, according to the directions of David, king of Israel, they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. So just imagine this, then we're going to read the next couple of verses. There has been no sacrifice. The foundation of the temple who was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar, 70 years have gone by. Finally, the people are able to come and start sacrificing, worshiping the Lord. 
<coughs> you know, these all these sacrifices, which, you know, point forward to Christ and his sacrifice. You know, we uh, on this end of things, you know, we we speak of Jesus dying on the cross for us. And that can get, you know, somewhat tried if we're not careful. Um, we look back to the Old Testament. It helps us. Remi- it reminds us. And it gives us an appreciation for Christ's once-for-all sacrifice. In order to live in covenant relationship with God by faith at this time, you were slaughtering animals, blood, animal after animal, sacrifice after sacrifice, in order for God to make his presence known because his people are sinful. God would, would have a relationship with people, but he would not make his presence known unless these sacrifices are being laid out so the people sing now notice the response um, there on the back half of verse 11 and all the people shouted with a great shout when the pray when they praised the lord because the foundations of the house of the lord was laid but many of the priests and levites and heads of the father's household who had seen the first house wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid though they shouted aloud um, for joy so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout with the sounds of the people's weeping for the people shouted with a great shout and the sound was heard far away. So you got to just think we haven't, we've skipped over the passages that talk about the hundreds and hundreds, several thousand people that returned back. So when the foundations are laid, there's this response of singing and people are shouting so those of you guys that have been to various sports events, you know, if you go and you watch a baseball game, somebody hits a home run, it gets pretty crazy, right? I like baseball culture, but I went to one NFL football game a few years ago, and we stood up for the kickoff, and everybody's shouting and going nuts, and as soon as the kickoff was done, I was ready to sit down, and nobody sat down, and they stood for the whole game, and I'm like, man, I like baseball, <laughs> Baseball, you can kind of sit down, relax a little bit, have a hot dog. These guys were just like animals for the whole game, just shouting and yelling. And then at halftime, there's people fighting and stuff. It was just nuts. Um, but here, we're not, we're not having fighting, but just imagine thousands and thousands of people. The foundation is laid, and they're just going berserk. All the sacrifices have been laid. They're seeing the, the fulfillment of prophecy here they are back in the land and then the elderly people start sobbing now a lot of the commentators believe that they're sobbing because the glory of this temple doesn't look like it's going to be the glory of the next one when the foundations are laid i don't know if that's it and you guys can disagree me if you with me if you want the only thing that's happened so far is the foundation so i don't know that the elderly are going to look at the foundation and, and start crying because it doesn't look like the old one if I was an elderly person coming back and I'd been in captivity for 70 years and now I'm finally seeing the foundation laid again, I would just be weeping in joy. I would probably just convo- I weep at like when I'm watching, uh, you know, what's that neighborhood on PBS, the neighborhood guy? I, I cry when I watch Mr. Rogers. So <clears throat> if I was seeing the foundation of the temple being laid after 80 years, I would just be convulsing probably. And just enjoy that the Lord had fulfilled his promise. And here we are back in the land. And so you've got people crying. You've got people shouting. And it's, we're just talking about thousands of people. And, um, and the sound was heard far away. So I don't, I don't know if you've ever been. If you ever left a baseball game early, we, we almost never do that. But there was one time I was with some fuddy-duddies. I won't say who they were. I don't even remember who they were. But they said, oh, we got to leave. You know, we got to go home. So we had to leave the game early. They thought it was over. We get out in the parking lot. Suddenly you hear this. <laughs> turn on the radio. The angels come back and they win. So I'm looking at my friends like, ah, you know. <clears throat> but you could hear this shouting, right, out in the parking lot. It was just like overwhelming. And so you can only imagine what these people are hearing from far away, all the shouting and crying as as the temple is being the foundations of the temple are just being laid just amazing amazing stuff so finally let's turn to ezra 6 to kind of wrap this 
up. So in Ezra 6, we're actually about 20 years or so. So, so some things have transpired. The people, so they lay the foundation, but then there's some political wranglings that go on. The people get scared. Um, they don't finish the temple. Haggai starts writing, and, and Zechariah, they're writing to encourage the people. And this is where Nehemiah comes down to help finish everything. So what happens is uh, verse 13 to 22. Then, this is 6.13, according to the word sent by Darius the king. <clears throat> so we've, some time has transpired. We've got, we're at Darius. <clears throat> uh, Tetanai, the governor of the province of uh, beyond the river. So that's actually what their province was called by the Persians. So they would have referred to it as Judah. But if they were talking to a Persian, hey, where do you live? Oh, well, I live beyond the river. Or the NIV says Transjordan, right? Anybody have the NIV? <clears throat> It'll probably say Transjordan. But the literal is beyond the river is what their area is called. Anyway, uh, uh, Shethar Bazanai and their associates, associates did with all diligence what Darius the king had ordered. And the elders of the Jews built and prospered through the prophesying of Haggai, prophet of Zechariah, the son of Edo. They finished their building by the decree of God of Israel and by decree of Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. And this house was finished on the third day of the month of Adar in the sixth year of the reign of Darius the king. And the people of Israel, the priests, the Levites, the rest of the returned exiles celebrated the dedication of the house of God with joy. They offered at the dedication of his house of God 100 bulls, 200 rams, 400 lambs, and as a sin offering for all of Israel, 12 male goats according to the number of the tribe of Israel. And they set the priests in their division and the Levites in their divisions for service of God at Jerusalem as it is written in Moses. So this is, these are a lot of sacrifices. This is a lot of blood. This is celebration. If you compare this, though, to Solomon, it's nothing. Go back and read the numbers of Solomon's like thousands of this and a thousand of that when, when he is making the offerings for the opening of the first temple. However, verse 19, on the 14th day of the first month, uh, the returned exiles kept the Passover that hadn't been kept for a long, long time. For the priests and the Levites had purified themselves together. All of them were clean, so they slaughtered the Passover lamb. For all the returned exiles, for their uh, fellow priests, and for themselves. It was eaten by the people of Israel who had returned from exile. Now notice this. And also by everyone who had joined them and separated himself from the uncleanness of the peoples of the land to worship the Lord, the God of Israel. What does that mean? It means there were actually converts that came down with them from Babylonia. Now, when does that happen? That a people gets carried off into captivity, and then the captors convert to the God of the captives. And so you actually have people who return back down from um, and, and now are following the God of Yahweh, and they've come to this sacrifice and this Passover. No doubt these would have been people that would have heard and seen the miracles done for Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and just watching what the Lord is doing for their slaves. And so they come back down with them. Um, and so let's see. Let's look at verse 22. And they kept the feast of the unleavened bread seven days with joy for the Lord had made them joyful and had turned the heart of the king of Assyria to them so that he aided them in the work of the house of God and the God of Israel. Uh, using the term king of Assyria is kind of a, you know, like when one king would conquer another king, they would take the crown of those kingdoms, right? So we know that Cyrus is the king of Persia, but he conquered Nebuchadnezzar, who had also conquered Assyria. So by that train, Cyrus is also the king of Assyria. Does that make sense? Um, you just keep all the crowns of the previous kings who had been conquered. And so all this to say, we've got, you know, God has now fulfilled the return back to Israel. 
and the foundations have been laid and, and we'll talk more about some of the challenges that they had in getting the temple finished, but now the temple's finished and, and the Lord is being worshiped and, um, and his presence is being enjoyed. It says the Lord made them joyful. And, um, and not only that, we have uh, converts from Persia or Babylon who had come down. So let's, let's talk about uh, just a couple, uh, you know, just things that we can think about as, as, as far as why this text is in, our, in, in the Bible. You know, God directs the heart of the king. Um, God directed the hearts of leaders. He directed the prophets. His fingerprints are everywhere. Um, all of this happened so that the praises and sacrifices could commence for the temple and so that the people could practice the festivals and sacrifices. So they're worshiping and, you know, just enjoying Yahweh through the sacrificial system, which we know is a pointer. It's a shadow, right, of Christ and his sacrifice. So we don't want to forget that all that was done here is to point forward to Jesus. We have the temple, but today the temple is right here. <clears throat> you know, Jesus said to the woman at the well, yeah, salvation's of the Jews, but the day is coming when people worship him, will worship him in spirit and in truth. And as the New Testament develops, we, we, we begin to see that the temple is no longer that place in Jerusalem. The temple is the gathering together of God's people. Where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst. So we see God just, just guiding history. All of this stuff is moving, and eventually it's going to be moving to the, to the birth of the Messiah uh, in Bethlehem. Um, let's talk about this. Is this it? Let me see. Yeah, let's talk about this question real quick. How do the many passages that we looked at regarding the influence of God, the kingdoms of men, influence the way that you interpret and think about the government that is ruling over our country or other countries? This is probably all we'll have time for. To finish up, um, it's clear that God was guiding this whole process. All the way from the prophecies of Isaiah, the prophecy of Jeremiah, the movement of the people up into captivity. In fact, God warns the people. He says, don't even resist it. Go. This is my will. You are being punished for your sins, but I'm going to take you up into captivity, and then I'm going to return you back. So just submit to it. And... Um, and so it's just interesting to see how the Lord is just guiding his people, even as these leaders are moving and, and they're moving pieces and attacking one another. Daniel survives the whole thing. Think about some of the people that, that didn't return. Jeremiah was taken into captivity. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. These are folks that God used for a time, but they never got to come back. Um, they were they were parts of the process, but just think about how <clears throat> the Lord is guiding history today. You know, we sh we need to be careful about, on the one hand, putting too much trust in our government to make everything better. On the other hand, to think that oh everything's out of control, we need to worry. And no, the Lord, I mean, God used King James, who wasn't one of the greatest kings of England. Let me tell you. And yet God used him to cause this translation of the King James Bible, one of the greatest pieces of literature in English history, and, and, um, and not to mention just the influence that it had on the world. Um, you can think of Winston Churchill. We've talked about him, how the Lord, there's many ways in which the Lord used our previous president, Obama. I know that, you know, not one of my favorite presidents, uh, Bill Clinton, but, you know, one of the things he did in his administration is he passed something called the equal access law. Uh, there was a time in which they started to stop. They weren't allowing Christian clubs to meet. Uh, but Clinton pushed through this legislation that allowed Christian clubs to meet again as long as they were student-led. Any type of club could meet as long as it was student-led. They had to get a teacher advisor. But I remember going and speaking when I was in high school to our district about why we should be allowed to meet. And they had shut us down, saying our Christian club could not meet. And then Clinton came along, passed the Equal Access Law, and that all changed. I don't think this guy's a believer. <clears throat> you know, 
this guy did some pretty raunchy things, but the Lord used him to, to fight for the freedom of, uh, of Christians to meet on public school campuses. Um, you know, you, I know there, there's probably different views, you know, politically here, but there's ways in which we can look and see how the Lord is kind of guiding the process in our country. Um, I see some some changes. Even like, you know, one of the things that you can do is, is look at what advertisers are doing. Advertisers a lot of times will give you a clue to what they think is going on in the culture. And I'll tell you a couple things, and you might think I'm a little crazy on this, but um, the Carl's Jr. commercials have completely changed. If you watch the Super Bowl this last time, the commercials have changed. They have gotten more conservative. And why, why is that? And one of the reasons that some people suggest they're calling it the Trump factor. And underneath that, in parentheses, is the Michael Pence factor. Yeah. Is that advertisers are actually viewing that there's a conservative movement in our culture that culturally, in some ways, we're becoming more conservative right now. That doesn't mean it's going to continue to go that way. But there's a reason why um, places like Carl's Jr. felt like they wanted to advertise a certain way about two years ago because they felt like the culture was going this direction. And there's a reason why Carl's Jr. has pulled those commercials and now they're going a more conservative direction. There's a reason why the, the NFL commercials, the Super Bowl commercials, were much better this time around than they were like two or three years ago where you felt like you had to like just keep the TV off during the commercials. Um, the Lord sometimes just does things like that. He'll just start moving certain ways. Doesn't mean that our leadership is our believers necessarily, but God will sometimes use things that kind of move things a certain direction. Let me end with this story. Um, have, have you guys heard me do my little thing on, on Mitsuo Fuchida? How many have already heard about Mitsuo Fuchida? All right, I'll do a different one. Um, Gustavus Vasa. Anybody ever heard of Gustavus Vasa? Okay, that's good. So we, if, if any of you guys uh, ever take uh, some of your literature classes in college, one of the things that's real popular to do is these slave narratives. There's a lot of slave narratives out there. Gustavus Vasa is, was a slave from Africa that was captured by another tribe, and then he was sold uh, into slavery, eventually made his way up into Europe. And uh, his, Gustavus Vasa is his European name. Um, but he came into contact with believers uh, up in Europe and came to know Christ. And uh, not just any believers, but he came to know believers that were very much influenced by the Puritan reform movement. And so <clears throat> this guy wrote a slave narrative back in the 1600s that is just chuck full of gospel, just sharing his testimony. And... And at the same time, he is one of the early writers that began to make people aware of the, of the horrors of the slave trade and was very influential later in, in basically seeing, it took a long time, but seeing slavery outlawed in Europe. And so, but when you read his testimony, he, he argues that God in his sovereignty allowed him to be captured in Africa and brought to Europe so that he could come into contact with the gospel. What is he saying by that? Is he saying that slavery is a good thing? No, he repudiated slavery, and he was one of the early writers that helped people see how terrible slavery was, because a lot of people just didn't know what was happening. But in the sovereignty, in the first causation, he saw that God had allowed him. He says right in his, in his narrative, if he would have stayed in his home country, he probably would have never come into contact with the gospel. But God, in his kindness, brought him to a place where he heard the gospel. He became saved, and then the Lord was able to use him to also speak out of, against the travesties of slavery. And so we see the Lord is just spinning plates. He's doing amazing things that go well beyond our knowledge. You know, we have to, there's right use and wrong use of doctrine. You can take God's sovereignty and say, oh, okay, well, that justifies the slave trade. No. That's not what Gustavus Voss would say. But you would say, God can take terrible things. I know people, I've met people who have been ripped from their place uh, from sex trafficking and came into contact with the gospel as a result of that 
came to know Christ, they would repudiate what happened to them in being sex trafficked, but thank the Lord that they were brought into a locale that they came to know the Lord Jesus Christ. How does the Lord do that kind of stuff? How does he make that kind of thing happen? Um, which is... Yeah, so Brian says, you know, Genesis 50, 20, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. So we always have to, that's exactly right, Brian. We've got to keep that creator-creature distinction always in mind. That God is moving things, and he can use, you know, the devil thinks he's up to something, and God just turns what the devil thinks he's doing backwards. No doubt the devil thought he was doing something grand to have Christ crucified on the cross, and he was just falling backwards into God's plan. Who can possibly do that but our God, right? Let's go ahead and pray, and I'll be up here for questions. Lord, we thank you so much for just these reminders from Ezra and uh, just the your power to prophesy and bring these things to pass, to move kings and move leaders. Lord, we thank you for the great joy that you put into the hearts of your people as they saw the temple built. And we pray, Father, that you'd fill our hearts with joy today as we come together as your temple to lift up your name. We pray, God, that we would have great hope in your control over history. Help us to, to properly submit to leaders, but not in a sinful way. <clears throat> Help us to exhort our leaders and use our rights in this country. Thank you for the rights that we do possess. Uh, but we pray, Father, that we would not overly trust in the leaders of government and to see that you are behind all. Uh, Lord, we so look forward to your return. When every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that you are Lord, we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.